The volunteer story you are about to hear is true. I know because I am married to this volunteer. Like many folks, my wife had her own great resignation during the pandemic. After quite a brilliant career as a television programming executive, Eileen became a five-star realtor. She renovated and flipped houses and helped many land in a place they call home. I may not be objective, but she's not a four-star kind of gal. But real estate didn't fuel her soul, and she, like many during 2020, began the hunt for meaning and purpose. That journey took her to begin a hunt to volunteer. Eileen's bio is in the show notes, but here's what you need to know. She's an overachiever. She's had a remarkable television career. She's passed her Medicare birthday, and she and I have been together for over 40 years. Let's do this. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at joangary.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. All right, Eileen, you're on the air. Let's talk about how you approached this whole volunteer hunt. What was your strategy? And how did you think about what causes? Hi, Joan. (laughs) I had a lot of time to think during the pandemic. And I cared a great deal about my work in television. It was very satisfying, really creative, very busy. And I found myself at a point where I didn't feel that creative satisfaction anymore. And I sat during the pandemic and thought about the things I really care about and put together a list and try to organize the kinds of places I would like to approach. You're good with lists. I'm very good with lists. I have long-term lists, medium, and lists just for today. (laughs) And they're on index cards, aren't they, Eileen? They are. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you made a list, and you looked at the list, and you how did you assess the list? Well, the thing that was most important to me was my sympathy, my empathy towards young people. I had personally had a difficult upbringing. I'm the daughter of Holocaust survivors, so that in and of itself tells you that it was a rocky family history with lots of emotion. And my family didn't take too well to the concept of having a lesbian child. It's not that they weren't progressive thinking. They just didn't want this to happen to their own child. So it was a difficult number of teenage years, and it continued throughout the rest of their lives. And I wanted very much for young people not to go through the kind of experiences I had to live through. And that was one of my primary goals. Also, we are the parents of three children. And so I am really uh, very interested in helping the young people of America sort of get through very difficult times. 
Um, we might want to point out, too, that one-third of our children are LGBT. That's correct. So we also have an LGBT young person in our family. Which led me to two places. One place was focusing mainly on LGBTQ young people who were Jewish and who may have maybe going through the same kinds of things I went through. And another was a teenage suicide hotline for LGBTQ young people. So the interesting thing about those two organizations is that they were quite different, right? One of them is clearly sort of in the trenches. One of them is not quite as kind of direct, right? So one of them, a suicide hotline would be considered to be kind of a direct service organization and an organization that supports and advocates for LGBT young people who are Jewish, that would be more of an advocacy organization. Did you did you have a preference? Did you did you want to roll up your sleeves and actually do the work or did like did you care about what you did at these organizations? One thing was really very clear to me. I just wanted to be of help. I did not need to be on the board. And in fact, I had had a couple of experiences in the past being on boards that were not very satisfying. I found my work on boards to, let's put it this way, I'm not a very patient person. I like to get things done. And I found that the boards I was on, those two boards moved very slowly did not necessarily have a great working team, and I felt that I wasn't making any contribution at all. And in both cases, I resigned from the boards, something I didn't really enjoy doing, but I felt that I wasn't really being of much help. So I decided that I would be any kind of volunteer. I would stuff envelopes, I would send emails, I would do anything I didn't need to have the kind of position that one would, in talking with me, would say, oh, she wants a high-level job because she's a high-level executive. So I have, this is the second time Eileen and I have done a podcast, and the first podcast we did together was called Confessions of a Terrible Board Member, in which she talked about the experience of being a board member, and we have actually made a commitment to have a revisit of that Mm -hmm. podcast because Eileen has learned about the world of volunteerism and has thought differently about things. And she is today actually on a board. That's true. And is no, really no less impatient about getting things done, but it is actually working to her advantage on this particular board. But that is a topic for another podcast. Absolutely. I do think that my experience as a volunteer led me to understand how organizations work and how they don't work. And it really has informed me how I might be of good use on a board. And I've actually been thinking that I would join one. So anyway, that would be part two of a podcast we did, I don't know, a year and a half ago, which I think you would enjoy listening to. All I really wanted to do was work. I'm a worker. So talk about really briefly, because I want to talk about where you landed, but in order to really appreciate where you landed, you have to sort of talk about the journey, right? So, so you started with the advocacy organization. 
they weren't really set up for volunteers. There were members of their board, there were staff people, but they didn't have a lot of members in their organization, and I thought it would be a perfect fit to send me out and do all sorts of different things, but they just weren't ready yet. And at the time, I felt kind of ignored or shoved off to the side. They weren't really doing that. They just didn't know what to do with somebody like me, even though I said, please, I'll do anything. I'll usher at your events. I'll help you write press releases. Whatever it is, I will do it. And they just, I thought of it in a way as some mismanagement. Because here was an organization that needed help. I was someone, still am someone, who can help in addition to fundraising. And um, they didn't take me up on it. And I was very disappointed. So in my mind, there are, I don't know, I I find myself wondering if there's any organization, any nonprofit organization, that really just simply doesn't lend itself towards volunteerism. I think I leave myself with a question mark there. I also find myself experiencing nonprofit organizations, and I've talked to other executive directors who say we should be much better at this. We should know what to do with people when they come across the transom and they have skills to offer, and we just don't do it well. Well, I get the sense that things changed dramatically during the pandemic, Mm, and people started working remotely. And when you think about the traditional office situation where an organization might work in one or two cities and there's a physical office that a volunteer could come to and actually do work, that doesn't really exist so much anymore. People are working remotely. People don't have sort of that physical presence. And so it's... Makes it harder? It's more abstract. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. So I don't know that it's always true that advocacy organizations are more difficult to introduce volunteerism to, but direct service is definitely easier. So let's move on to the next place you found yourself, which was also in the LGBTQ youth space, this time on a suicide hotline. Yes. Um, I, let's talk I a little went bit about that. a very extensive training process And it was clear to me that I was kind of starting from a little bit of a deficit because I'm not as mm, facile on (laughs) a computer as others might be. Let's put it that way. And Yeah, we could put it that way. Yeah, I'm really good on my iPhone. You do well with your iPad, and then there are your index cards. Thank you. (laughs) But this was a volunteer position where I would be taking calls from clients who were feeling suicidal thoughts, and I had to be multitasking on my computer, contacting a counselor, seeking help, because perhaps this individual was in dire straits, and it was very, it was it was really you know all hands on deck. And I I couldn't do it, and that intimidated me. The thing that I realized along the way was that I needed to feel that I was more in control. Mm. I, you mean like autonomy? 
we'll get to that later, but I wanted to give advice. I wanted to be able to tell these young people what to do. Yeah. And the purpose of this particular organization and the way that they imagined the best thing to do would be was to listen. Which is... Right. I hear you telling me this. I'm hearing you say that. And I would hear them and confirm that I was hearing what they were saying. But on top of that, I was someone who would say, well, why don't you think about doing this? Or why don't you do that? Why don't you go talk to your this? Why I have an organization I can recommend to you. And that was a little too much. I was taking on too much expertise, you know, taking on too much expertise when I didn't really have any. Well, it was different, though. It was that the clinical framework didn't call for that, right? It did Right. Is that, is that as part of that training, giving advice was actually not the philosophy. It was not part of the way the training went. The training itself kind of went against who you are and what you wanted to do. It wasn't necessarily that the training was bad or good. It just wasn't you. It wasn't me. It wasn't me, but it was very upsetting. I actually was, I failed. I failed my final tests. There were some counselors who did role play with me, and I just took on too much responsibility for trying to save these people. I mean, I was ready to, like, make chicken soup and, you know, with matzo balls. Fly it to Kansas City fly or it something. To Kansas, exactly, and yeah. fly it to Kansas City. I, I would, I, I really would do that. And I'm not, yes, that's an exaggeration, but it's just yay short. Right. I knew that I would fall prey to wanting to talk to these people on the phone, call me back anytime. You know, I'm there for you. I would get into their lives. And this is not what works best for this organization, according to their point of view. Yeah. And it, what what was interesting to me about it, just as I thought I about it, I was sad. Well, first of all, not just that the failure part was made you really sad for sure. I just thought it was just potentially incredibly traumatic to take that kind of work on. That's really, really hard work. I mean, I listened to those role plays and the kinds of calls that they get really put a lot of emotional strain on the people who answer it's the phone. It's very scary, but the commitment was there. Right. And so it's interesting to me, knowing you, that that part wouldn't be too hard for you. For you, it was, I could handle that as long as I can actually be of help in the way that... In the it, way I, I thought it was yes, help. Correct. Exactly. But not in the way the organization thought that it was help. Um, talk to me about, did it take a while to recover? Because yes. you don't fail at things. No. <laughs> you have nightmares about failing at things, but yes. in reality, you don't yes. actually fail at them. I, it was very upsetting to me, and I had to go back to square one and start thinking about some other kinds of things. And I, I'm happy to say, midway through this podcast, that I have found some really great things that I'm working on, and I would recommend volunteering to absolutely everyone under the sun, and it's done remarkable things for me. Before you talk about where you landed, a couple things. First of all, we're actually talking with Eileen Opetut, who is a gifted television programming executive. 
She is a former realtor, fixer, flipper, and she is also my wife of (laughs) (laughs) almost 10 years legally and 43 years if we could have been legal. And we're talking about volunteerism and the hunt for the right volunteer role. The Nonprofit Leadership Lab is led by Joan Gary and is the world's best online community for leaders of small nonprofits. Learn how to raise more money, build the board of your dreams, grow a large audience of supporters, and so much more. To learn more and request an invitation to become a member, please go to nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. That's nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. So the things that you landed on, which you're about, you're about to tell everybody about, were they on that index card too? Remember, yes. said they were on the index yes. card. So yes. the things that the, the LGBT young people was sort of the thing that really stuck out on the index card list. That was number list. one. And then that was number one. Number two was food, food insecurity. Okay. In my professional life, I was the head of production and programming for the Food Network for about 10 years. And I brought a lot of great talent to the network and a lot of great concepts to the network because of my great love of not necessarily fancy, complicated food, but real food. I was very concerned that people had forgotten what to do with food because of convenience. I was afraid that young people didn't know how to feed themselves. And I was really afraid that people did not know how to serve themselves good, healthy food on a budget. So I. So this made, was something while during your tenure at the Food Network, you put to use as a, as as in the corporate world, and you said, "Right, I think care about, about that." Thirty minute meals, Rachel Ray. Yes, that was that was my idea. You know, you come home from work, there are more than likely two parents working, kids are playing basketball, they come home late. What are you going to put on the table? Ah, Rachel's going to show me how to do this in thirty minutes. This is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of. I sent Bobby. Flay out on the road to find the best meals that like grandma, your your grandmother or aunt made. Those were the kinds of things that I really cared about. I cared about the Barefoot Contessa. She was able to take a few ingredients with very uncomplicated preparation and make them just delicious, whether it was just for you or for for guests to, to try to encourage you to invite people over right. and be with others. As, so, a, as an aside, I will just say that thanks to Ina Garden and thanks to Eileen putting her on the Food Network, I actually cook now real food that we serve to people who come to dinner. And it's, and it's good. She loves to cook. And, <laughs> and I love that. So I volunteered with the local food kitchen and learned more about it. But I think what was really important for me was speaking with the executive director of the organization. During the pandemic, they had moved from about uh, 500,000 meals during the year to one and a half million meals served during the year. Now, they did have a dining room, which was soon overtaken by supplies that people were donating and organizations were donating. 
And during COVID, they couldn't serve those meals anymore. And so after talking with the executive director, I came up with an idea that she allowed me to run with on my own. Ah. And that is the perfect, for me, the perfect combination. And this is a plan to reach out to medical organizations to have them inform us or urge their patients to get in touch with us when they're feeling food insecure. And more and more people are feeling that way. It's not just the lowest end of the economic spectrum. People are having to make choices. Do I serve healthy food? And how am I going to buy all those books for my college freshmen? So are you talking about Doctors? Doctors, pediatricians, dealing with people who are elderly in the home. And what we have now done is reached out to medical groups who include doctors, nurses, social workers, therapists, who are working with their clients and realize there's a food problem. And what I've done is come up with a plan to deliver boxes of food to them on a weekly basis that are just for them. Now, it could be that someone has a heart condition or some other medical condition, but it's mainly for people who are having a tough time making ends meet, and at the same time encouraging them to use food. Now, I I grew up in a very poor family, and we had to make everything last. And I know one day my mom and I counted out that she could make 27 different, (laughs) completely different food items out of potatoes. And I'm that kind of person. I won't waste a scrap. I really feel that you have to know how to cook in order to save money and to really make good use of the food that you have in front of you. So I'm so proud of this project. And why it works for me is I'm a volunteer, but I have my own project. I run with it. I get to set up my own team because there are people helping me reach out to doctors. I get to track it. I get to report on it, and, and I get great satisfaction seeing the numbers grow. There's something else about it that feels worth pointing out, too, which is it is a project that allows you to tap into things you're really good at, which is kind of new ideas that the executive director was totally into brainstorming with you. You love that. And because you had been in corporate America for so long, these large health organizations, you could imagine what's in it for them as well as what's in it for Tony's Kitchen. I knew how to present it to them and make it a win-win situation for everyone, well, and particularly for regular people who need food. And I was able to organize and able to promote it and able to sell it, to sell my idea because I was passionate about it, but I also knew how to present it. And so I wasn't on the board. I'm not on the board, but I'm a volunteer. And I came up with a big idea. And that's what really works for me. Another item... Well, before you oh, yeah. go there, because um, I, I, I want to I talk about the connection, 
because I had a very distinct point of view about what you should do with your time. Uh-huh, what um, was that? <laughs> <laughs> was that I, gardening is just a natural thing for you. It's therapeutic. Every home we've ever lived in has had stunning gardens that you have built. I'm looking out our window at our the winter version of our garden. Ah. And talk about that, too, because it, food is connected, but you also decided right. as part of this, this, lear- this adventure, this volunteer effort, that you connected that also with gardening. So maybe it would... I don't know Absol- if that's where no, you no. were going next. I but- was. Ah, I was. Sorry. I went. I went. I actually went back to school. I had realized that there were things that I had missed. I you mean, like organic chemistry. <laughs> well, I uh, yes. Yeah, kinda. Yeah, I uh, in college went to a school that didn't have any uh, requirements like language, math, science. And so I spent all my time focused on one area of academia and never stepped into the science building. Well, the college I went to has a huge greenhouse, and I spent so much of my time there but never took a class. And so I went back to school. And don't you ever sit and say, wow, I wish I could just go back and do fill in the blank. Right. I would get so much more out of school later in life than right. early in life. Right. Or or just say, gee, if I had a whole other career, I could do fill in the blank. Well, I don't have time for a whole other career, but I went back to school and became a master gardener through Rutgers University. It took a year. It was um, not inordinately expensive. No. No, because they want people to promote not just decorative gardening. In New Jersey, the whole program was created to help out farmers and agriculture because we are the garden state. And in certain counties in the state, it is more slanted towards agriculture. It was a tough class. It was also really tough because it was mainly virtual. We came out of our, you know, behind our computers and did work uh, hands-on towards, uh, you know, when things became a lot, a little safer for all of us to get together. But we became, a group of us became very close friends. Yep. And we've started preparing plans for uh, wonderful new parks in our town of Montclair. And I did something very special to me. A very dear friend of ours had been an organic gardener. He passed away a couple of years ago, and I rehabilitated his garden, put in 10 beds, and then grew vegetables for the the food organization that I just mentioned. Bingo. Let me also say, too, I want to make that volunteer connection for people who are listening to say that the Master Gardener program also is a kind of a Petri dish or kind of catalyzes people to volunteer. That, right. w- that in fact, Eileen's, the program Eileen 
was in demanded 70 volunteer hours. So it's actually, it's actually a program that fuels volunteerism in this arena around the state. So it's... Right. I found myself spending a couple of hours a week at one of the premier gardens, the premier parks in New Jersey, Branchbrook Park outside of Newark, and uh, learned so much from their horticulturalist. It was just fantastic. Right. And... All of the, you know, it, it creates this little army of people who take care of things that the state might not be able to take care of or local governments might not be able to do. So just to clarify, while Eileen was studying, she was investing 70 hours in volunteering. So remember what we're talking about here today is what was Eileen's journey about that led her to these things. And what we're now hearing is we're hearing about the intersection of things that Eileen loves. Right. And that was, I think, the most important thing is to focus not on the things I thought I should do, but on the things that really meant something to me. A lot of people say, well, I'm going to be involved in, I don't know, nuclear science. Um, It it doesn't mean anything to me whatsoever. Uh, So I stuck with those things that were clearly emotionally important to me and philosophically important, and I found my way. And I also found a sort of a group in each of those situations, people who saw things the same way I did. Joan is amazed that I have friends. Um, (laughs) No, because we were both workaholics. So I spent my life either working, traveling for work, or taking care of the kids. Right. So, and she did the same thing. So we had, you know, very little social life. And so I've met people who I really, who are very dear to me now. And it's because we have worked together on projects. And I surprised some people. One day I volunteered. We have a food truck at this food organization. And we go out and serve people in need in varying parts of the the county. And I'm a short order cook flipping burgers (laughs) And and I've never done this before. No, you came home smelling and like French fries. That I was did, a very unusual I did. thing. Deep yeah. frying, mm-hmm. you know, chicken nuggets and things like that. And we were once at a big town event, uh, and I was flipping burgers, and people I knew were walking by and went, "Hey, there's Eileen. <laughs> what are you doing?" And that got them interested in the organization because they thought, "Well, if Eileen's doing it." It must be good. And that allowed me to ask them for, you guessed it, money. money. (laughs) Um, Yes, money and hours of their time and other good ideas. I I want to... So now, of course, Eileen is becoming a five-star volunteer who has too much going on. But why not add one more thing? And I want want you to talk about this particular volunteer thing because there's more, right? Because I often talk about the notion that you don't have to engage staff on certain things and you don't have to engage boards on certain things. You can use people, utilize the skills of people who are in neither of those spheres and engage them and bring them closer to an organization. I, I call them kitchen cabinets or task forces, and they're 
excellent ways to bring people closer who might have skills, who might ultimately be able to donate, who might ultimately be board members, right? And so Eileen has found her way onto exactly one such thing with another organization in a different arena that also speaks to her personally. Eileen? I hope we're not speaking too fast, but uh, (laughs) uh, Joan consulted to an organization that I found very interesting, and I signed up for their newsletter. Just by way of giving you some background, I have diabetes. I became diabetic when our twins were born 28 years ago, and it has been a slow process, but I'm now at the point I'm actually a very lucky diabetes patient. Not too much has gone wrong, but it has become more serious as time has gone on. And what I have found is that the medical profession is very unclear about how to treat diabetes. One doctor has one point of view, another doctor has another. Dietitians, uh, one says, you know, count your carbohydrates, another says, eat high fat. It's really just a merry-go-round, a whirlwind, and it's very frustrating because there isn't really a rhyme or reason as to why you stay in, you know, sort of within your healthy range range in terms of your blood sugar numbers. And why you don't. Any minor thing can set you off, and it isn't a science. And this one organization has a newsletter that talks about all the latest findings, all the latest philosophies, about all the new findings from around the world, and I thought they were great. And I got to talk to the executive director, and a project came around where he invited me to join as kind of a consultant. Yep. Uh, A not-paying consultant. He wanted to talk about what things were keeping the world back in terms of uh, new findings in diabetes and what things were the most difficult for diabetes patients. And we all decided that it was stigma, that there is a stigma about type 2 diabetes patients, that it is all their own fault. And if they just hadn't had 17 Milky Way bars... (laughs) They, they would have been just fine, thank you very much. So it's all their fault, not type 1, but, you know, because the, you know, kids... They can't help it. They can't help it, but type 2, and it's just not the case. Uh, so much of it is genetic. And because I'm someone who has always uh, historically been an out-of-the-box thinker and someone who is an initiator... I'm someone who is very good, I realize, at kicking things off, and I'm very much a why not person. Why can't you see it this way? Why can't we do it this way? Uh, Let's just try it. Uh, You know, I'm really terrible when people say, oh, we've already tried that. It just doesn't work. So I'm not a great manager when things just stay still because I... I like to, you know, kick the box a little bit, and I like to challenge things. And so I'm the per- I was the perfect person for him. And he put a group of us together. Some of us were from the medical profession, uh, being led by a, a research group that was really out-of-the-box thinking. And I wor- have worked with them for really, I think, the last year. Yeah. 
in coming up with a strategy to work with not just people who have diabetes, but all those others who don't. And, you know, just to share with you, 30% of the American population has diabetes, 10% is pre-diabetic, and it's only growing at a more massive rate with young people. So it is a very serious issue that I don't think people take seriously enough, just my little pitch. So getting rid of stigma or trying to help people understand what the issues are is extremely important, not just to me, but to everyone. And I've been having a great time being asked to do all those things I do best, which is Challenge, brainstorm, innovate. What might be possible, right? And you're not finished with that. It's still a journey. No, I've been told, I've never had this experience, where someone said to me, think as big as you can, and then we'll bring it back if we have to. Love that. Love that. I love that. And so my volunteer life is very full. (laughs) It's very fulfilling. I have as busy a schedule as I had when I had a job. I just don't have to commute. And you get paid, but it's different, isn't it? Right? It's not financial reward. It's different. I just smile all the time. It's really different. And I think that this is another issue I talk about so often. It's a privilege. It's a joy to volunteer to an organization when it's the right organization for the volunteer when there is a passion at the heart of that person, and when you are open to the idea, because there's a couple things you heard in here, especially on the food insecurity organization, that executive director was willing to let go. Executive directors don't let go as much as they could or should. You have sometimes a little control thing. Come on, tell the truth. But this one... This particular executive director was willing to give Eileen autonomy and built trust with her. And in fact, I, in fact, I at times kept wanting to turn back to her to say, shouldn't you be the person who does this because you're the boss? And she would say, no, no, go with it. Go with it. So we really were partners. Mm. I love that. That's very good. I talk a lot about partnership as being a secret sauce in the nonprofit sector that distinguishes it in many ways from a hierarchical companies. And so another takeaway there. But just, I guess I have one last question for you, Eileen, before I ask you what, what you think we should have for dinner. What I heard in some of these takeaways is that this is a it's a journey. You just you you might find just the right kind of volunteer thing right off the bat, but in some ways you needed to go through what you went through to get to where you are. I have learned so much about the things I do well and the things I don't do well, and I'm good with that. I it has been an enormous growth experience. Love that. I wish I knew before what I know now about working with people, and I have only good things to say and wish I had volunteered more when I was, you know, up to my eyeballs with managing 
the paid work that I was doing, I really regret not having done more before. Because of what it would teach you about, right? So managing people who are, you know, managing a project or managing people who are driven by the passion that they have rather than by the year-end bonus or those kinds of things, I think, can be really important lessons as you're working with other volunteers. Well, and a lot really depends on environment. What I have discovered is executive directors create different kinds of environments for the people who work for them, and it plays out in the way everyone works with you, with me. Right. Absolutely. And I, I want to say, and then I want to ask Eileen to just end with some advice for nonprofit executive directors who are listening or development directors who are listening, those people who could benefit from volunteers. What kind of, I'll let her have the last word in terms of advice there, but volunteers are not too much work. Every organization, I believe, has to figure out a way to engage people like the Eileen's of the world to find spots for them where they can make a difference because you can't always afford to buy the expertise that comes with a volunteer. And with every nonprofit organization, the number of people you have is directly connected to the amount of power you have as an organization your power to raise money, your power to mobilize people, all of it. The more people who know about you and are close to your organization, the more impact you're going to have. And that includes volunteers. So that's my soapbox, which I'll put away. And I'm going to leave the last word to Eileen, which is you're speaking to people who can engage volunteers in nonprofit organizations. What kind of advice would you offer them? Well, first of all, I want to thank you for listening to me (laughs) and listening to all the ins and outs and all the little details of all the things I've been doing. Thank you. I hope it's been helpful to you. I would say that Having spent my life with someone who was an executive director, there's a lot of pressure to talk to people who are able to provide you with important things like budget and money. And I think that as executive directors, you might spend an equal or some large part of your time talking with people who can give you something that doesn't equal money, and that equals ideas, management, time, time, skill, and sparking your organization into new directions or helping you move your organization into the direction you've already decided. There are so many people who have retired or who are thinking of retiring who want to live their passion and want so very much, if I can plead on their behalf, to feel a sense of belonging mm. and a sense of feeling worthwhile and, and contribution uh, to society, that they're all really just sitting out there. Not all of them are going to prove the right fit, obviously, but some of them really will. And my experience has been that it is a wonderful situation when it does work and has enhanced the organization tremendously in addition to enhancing the individual. So 
Thank you. And good luck to all of you in doing all the good things that you do. It makes me very, very happy. So uh, that's the story about uh, the volunteer journey of my wife. And I hope you found it helpful. I hope you uh, really gave some thought to what is the volunteer landscape in your organization? Could it be different? Could it be stronger? Are you willing to let go? Uh, Are there ways to engage people beyond simply their checkbooks? Eileen is actually uh, a proof that there is huge value in the skills and the time of so many people. And Eileen's journey was a very proactive, strategic one. She went looking, but there are a lot of people. They're sitting up there in the stands, and they would like very much to be on the field, and all you need to do is invite them. With that said, thank you for the work you do, and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.